stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. When he got on a plane in Portland, Oregon last night, he was just another passenger who gave his name as D.A. Cooper. But today, after hijacking a Northwest Airlines jet, ransoming the passengers in Seattle, then making a getaway by parachute somewhere between there and Reno, Nevada, the description on one wire service, Master Criminal. Well, Master Criminal indeed. Uh, November 24th, 1971, maybe the most famous uh, airline hijacking, at least uh, for this reason. Uh, D.B. Cooper, as it's become known, which was uh, Dan Cooper, you even heard D.A. Cooper in that, that news report, but it became known as the D.B. Cooper hijacking. And the mystery of well, who was this guy, what happened? Guy hijacks a plane, demands $200,000 in ransom, parachutes out of the plane at some point is never seen again. Some of the money was found along the banks of the Columbia River nine years later. But that was what made the story so fascinating. Nobody knew what had happened. Did this guy get away with it? Did he die? What happened to him? Who was he? I think for that reason, it's fascinated people to this very day. Do we maybe now know the answers to some of these big questions? Now, this has been getting a lot of attention in recent days. Here's a story from Newsweek. A team of investigators has uncovered a 1972 message by infamous skyjacker D.B. Cooper and is claiming that he is actually a Vietnam veteran by the name of Robert Rackstrom. Investigation led by filmmaker and author Thomas Colbert claims that Cooper sent a letter to the Portland, Oregonian newspaper revealing his identity as Rackstraw. Now, Rackstraw, he's still alive, 74 years old. He's been very tight-lipped about all of this, but was a suspect for a number of years. He was a person of interest to the FBI, was a special forces paratrooper, explosive expert, pilot with about 22 different aliases. Obviously, someone you might look at. But what is it about these letters, then, that help us finally solve this mystery? Well, joining us to talk more about it uh, is Tom Colbert, uh, leader of this uh, cold case team, also co-author of a book on this case called The Last Master Outlaw, much more, dbcooper.com. Tom, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having us. Let's talk about your own interest in this case. How long have you been working on this? Well, people, uh, after this is uh, the end, February was the end of our seventh year, and we closed the case in February and uh, disbanded the team. I've been fascinated with this since since kid, as uh, is heading off to high school, seeing my dad with the paper spread out on his lap and seeing the headline about the hijacking in 71. And uh, then onward, as a CBS News senior research reporter in Los Angeles for 10 years, I was a lucky guy that took the calls every few months. I'm sure you've had them, Rob. Oh, it was my husband on his deathbed. I have an uncle. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it, it was in my life all those years. And then um, I had a source come to me from Las Vegas, of all places, a cameraman that worked with me in L.A., Knew him for 20 years, and he has a little grapevine of sources uh, in the casinos, and he's informed that there's a, a guy who's just about to become a grandpa that wants to get something off his chest. And that's how the story began for us. Well, yeah, it's interesting because, as you mentioned, there, there's so much clutter. There's so much noise. You know, there's there's people yeah. just looking to make a name for themselves or, or just looking to get some attention for whatever reason. How do you go about sorting through what's a legit lead and, and what's what takes you nowhere? 
Well, the first eight months is a great example. I was uh, tipped that a drug a drug trafficker had planted the money on the Oregon coast on the uh, Columbia River. And law enforcement, I've been a police, fire, military trainer part-time for years, and law enforcement has told me no one believed that money was found on the shore. Seven, eight years later, still with the rubber bands crumbling on them, uh, and nobody could prove it. Well, it was this trafficker who told me the story, and a former trafficker and his drug dealer uh, was hosting a party right in the shore and said, you see that North Shore? You see that couple over there at the party? They and their boy are going to find my money on that shoreline in four days. And sure enough, that's what happened. So I spent eight months working on the wrong guy, this drug trafficker, realizing it wasn't him. And then, lo and behold, one of his uh, frat brothers, uh, now in his 70s, told me, no, no, he was in my bar that day. There's no way he was Cooper. But, you know, I introduced him to a Vietnam vet who was actually a D.B. Cooper suspect years ago. And that's when I turned to my wife and I said, that's no coincidence. We, we have a guy who knew a, a Cooper suspect, and that's when we started down the right trail. Right. And there there have been a few suspects of the years, and and that has included this Robert Rackstraw. He was looked into as a suspect. But interestingly, I guess at at some point the FBI decided that that it wasn't their guy. That was an interesting uh, development. It was 1978 when he became a suspect. Local cops wanted him in California for various uh, unrelated felonies. And he fled all the way to Iran in the last year of the Shah to teach uh, helicopter pilots. Uh, and that happened because he was wanted for uh, crimes in California. And uh, it was uh, quite a development to have him come into the picture. The FBI chased him twice around the globe in 78-79. He escaped twice from them. And then suddenly in February 79, they announced, no, he's been cleared. Well, that was really interesting because our research shows that this is the biggest insurrection in the FBI history we can find. Six agents disagreed with that decision. They had been working on interviewing him, the family, crime partners, former vets, and they disagreed. In fact, they all went to separate papers to say it. And that was something uncovered not too long ago. We didn't realize it was within two days of the FBI leaking in Seattle. No, no, he's clear. And as you may uh, learn, and your audience can learn by going up to dbcooper.com, we have evidence the reason they won't charge this man is that he was a black ops pilot after the war for uh, the CIA. And we think there was a unholy alliance between the CIA and the FBI to look the other way. So as you mentioned, he clearly had the expertise. Uh, certainly you see a, a photo of him around the time. Very much uh, looks like these these uh, infamous um, suspect sketches. Mm-hmm. I, I guess th- the one thing people have pointed to is that he was, I think, in his late 20s at the time. And a lot of people describe the, the hijacker as, as middle-aged. That's what, uh, if you go up to the smoking gun, that's the first in the middle of the homepage uh, press releases, they can see letter number five. That's what they should look at. There have been six D.B. Cooper, ha-ha, you can't find me letters. Number five was translated by one of his army codebusters from Vietnam. In fact, he's translated all their secret messages and all six letters now up on that website. What's fascinating about five is that the writer said, I wore putty makeup, 
I wore a toupee, and I left no prints in the back. Those were secrets, biggest secrets of the FBI and a few passengers that passed on the information for over 10 years. And the fact that this author knew those things, well, J. Edgar Hoover himself, the founder, called the fifth letter the D.B. Cooper letter. And it was locked up for over almost 50 years until we got it through a judge's order. Why would he have written these letters, do you think? Well, he's been diagnosed by judges and family as a narcissistic sociopath and as a former FBI therapist, uh, a uh, expert in, in the human mind said, narcissists always want to remind themselves that they're smarter than everybody else. And they do put secret messages and things. That's historically what they do. So they can either have them for bragging rights, uh, bragging uh, rights later, or for themselves, just to remind themselves how brilliant they are. And that's that's how it was defined with these messages. Why you you and I would say, why would you do that? He was also putting messages for his three crime partners that we have confirmed through FBI records and our court order that helped him get away. The fact that he would have got away with it in the first place, um, you know, would, would give him maybe that, that feeling of invincibility. I, I pulled this off. They don't have exactly. a clue who I am. They don't have a clue where I've gone to. Hmm, that's exactly right. And uh, every, every message got more daring. The first one was, and, the, and you will see them up on uh, the smoking gun. Uh, there is the first one, he says, will the FBI catch me? The second one, if catch, I'm CIA. And he put his initials. Uh, he had worked with the uh, CIA since uh, '69 in Vietnam, uh, and uh, as we have verified, uh, for almost two decades later, too. So this this code was was sitting there in plain sight when when investigators initially looked at these letters. There were all kinds of random numbers that they just they couldn't make sense of, right? That's correct, because two of the three messages in letter five, which was the first one broken, were his, he had listed all three of his military units in a brag. Two of them were top secret till the 80s. So when the FBI got these letters right after the jump, no one knew how to translate those secret units. I'm sure there were Army veterans in the FBI at the time, but the codes are uh, uh, just for the units that use them. No other military units wouldn't understand them. In other words, they use terms to communicate only that they used. So nobody could translate it. And the fact that two of the three, three were secret and, and nobody had heard of the units is the reason nobody could break them. What was the significance of the word uncle or, or more specifically uh, where he uses the phrase unk, U-N-K? Well, he, he, the way the code works with numbers and, and alphabet letters is that you have to translate to the exact number in a section of a sentence so that it can be lifted out and your message could be put in. And to make it fit, at that point, he used unk. Uh, he couldn't use uncle. He couldn't spell it the normal way. He had to spell it a certain way. That's allowed in the Army code book. And by the way, we have his lieutenant colonel who still had a 1950 code book. And so when our code buster was breaking the letters, the lieutenant colonel was comparing the codes to make sure they were accurate. So we have uh, double confirmation that these codes were actually part of the training that they had taken 50 years ago. 
Because even when you go way back to when these letters first service, because, you know, it's sort of that that whole question of what's noise and, and what's legit. And there, there were other letters that were sent to other media outlets that they knew were, were oh, hoaxes. Yeah. But some of these letters, these ones in particular, they knew they were legit because whoever was writing them knew things that the public wouldn't have known, right? Exactly. And the last two were the most important because they were typed and they showed a knowledge of what went on in the plane. And that's why the FBI was very excited about them. Now, the last one, we're the ones that discovered its value. The FBI, I have a J. Edgar Hoover memo, and your audience can see it online in the sixth letter. The memo's right in the press release where he says, nothing here, no prints, no watermarks, move on. And that was J. Edgar Hoover's personal stamp on it to say that nothing could connect the letters. We were even told three or four years ago, oh, those letters were discounted. Well, now that we found codes in every one of the letters, I'm sure the FBI is, uh, well, frankly, they don't know what to say. We haven't heard from them since August when we dug up materials. We were given information on where the possible parachute and money were buried, and we brought in four materials. They didn't expect that. And since then, they've gone silent. They're down in their bunker. <laughs> well, and so here's, here's what's so fascinating about this now, because the case is, is officially closed. Uh, Robert Rackstraw is, is alive and well today, and now we've got this, this uh, overwhelming evidence pointing to a connection. So where, where does that leave us? Well, look, the FBI, let's be honest, they have bigger problems going on. There, as in a lot of countries around the world, a lot of ISIS uh, cells and people that have been influenced by ISIS are keeping them busy. Mm -hmm. And that's not any different here. The agents are working on that prime time. We also know they have some political firestorm going on in Washington. Right. This is low. This is some this priority on this case is somewhere between Jimmy Hoffa and Bigfoot. What about uh, Robert himself? Is, has he had anything to say about any of this? <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, several reporters have tried to reach him. He's hung up on several, but he will take some calls if, the, if he's in the mood. And, you know, he's a retired professor, uh, a retired instructor at uh, UC College, retired now in San Diego. He's running a little boat shop business down there. And when you can't find him on, uh, you know, in the office, you'll find him on the boat. You'll love it. The name of the boat is Poverty Sucks. That's <laughs> right. I am not. I'm not making this up. <laughs> uh, have you Have you spoken with him? I actually met with him uh, in 2013. We confronted him with the facts. We didn't know who he was at that time. We know that he was. Um, tried for murder of his own stepdad, the man that hid him for a year and a half. Uh, and many family members, including many, many members of our team, believe he got away with murder. He was able to convince the jury it wasn't him by sitting in a wheelchair and claiming a lot of medals he didn't have. Very sad development, and that was in 1978. Uh, we confronted him in 2013, not only about that, but who he was. We showed him his crime partners and so forth. And there's about three and a half of the video confrontation on the website under audio and video. I think your audience would have an uh, uh, interesting time watching him, him squirm. He uh, says a couple of things that are very, very interesting. So in your view... I mean, have we have we solved this case? Do we know who hijacked that plane back in in 1971? 
I absolutely know it's him. Um, I, look, as a senior researcher for CBS, uh, I lost my objectivity a long time ago on this case. There is an overwhelming hundred pieces of evidence, including DNA, on him that the FBI won't even accept to compare to the letters, the lick stamps on the old letters. They won't even look at them. We have uh, uh, forensic experts that looked at his writing, compared it to others. Uh, I even have his, several of his family members that are telling us it's him. I mean, it's it's silly at this point. The FBI uh, is in a tough place uh, because they're going through one scandal on the East Coast, and the last thing they want now is a scandal on the West Coast. So I think they're, in essence, waiting for him to move on from this planet. We'll see what happens. Indeed, we will. Uh, much more, as you mentioned, the memos, video, all of it, dbcooper.com. And again, the book, uh, The Last Master Outlaw. Tom, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having us, Rob. Talk to you soon. Yes, indeed. That is uh, Thomas Colbert, who is uh, the lead of this uh, DB Cooper cold case team. has been about uh, eight years investigating this. Pretty fascinating. Nine- Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.